0: Paralyzed by fear. Using the term "paralyzed" in this context is not inclusive, because that could be offensive to someone who is actually paralyzed.
1: Are you in a leadership role, trying to figure out how to convince others to change their mind? Have you ever wondered why is leading and influencing others so darn hard? Are you looking for practical answers to these two vital questions? If so, welcome to my podcast, Closing the Gap with Denise Cooper. I'm your host, Denise Cooper, and I am a storyteller. I interview thought leaders and people just like you who are learning and practicing the art and expanding on the science of leadership. Listen, as my guests and I talk about what it takes to be a remarkable leader in the 21st century. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening to everyone. You know, I started off every time saying the same thing. I am so Pleased that you are here today to listen to my podcast called Closing the Gap with Denise Cooper. I'm your hostess with the mostest, Denise Cooper. And I have a guest today who is just a really brilliant person. And I know all my guests are just so giving and brilliant and such experts in their area. But today we're going to talk about something that I found out in doing another podcast, Leadership Global and the C-suite is really a topic that is catching fire in the workplace, and that is this idea of smashing disabilities and the stigma around them. It seems that one of the things that has happened with the closing down of workplaces and the pandemic and all of that over the last two years is that many leaders and HR professionals are now trying to build environments where They make people of all kinds of backgrounds and issues come forth and feel included to have that psychological safety so that they can be their full self and know that the workplace and their peers and the policies that are in place will actually embrace them and make them feel like they are part of the workplace. My guest today is Katerina Rivera. She is the founder of Blindish Latina a platform smashing disability stigmas through storytelling, advocacy, and education. She has worn hearing aids from a young age and was diagnosed with a progressive vision loss at age 17. She is a public speaker and consultant with over 14 years of experience in the public sector, nonprofits, and education. Katerina shares her academic and career expertise, lived experiences with disability, and a passion on the topic related to disability awareness, inclusion, digital inclusion, accessibility, allyship, and advocacy. She has a BA from Duke University and an MS education, a master's degree in education from Bank Street College of Education, and a PMPH, we'll have to ask what that one is, from SUNY School of Public Health Hunter College. She is bilingual in English and Spanish, Her family is Cuban and Puerto Rican, and she is the first generation American on one side and the second generation on the other. With that, good day, Katarina. How are you? I'm
0: doing well. Thank you so much for having me, Denise. I'm really excited that you're focusing on this topic.
1: Good. So, yeah, it's very interesting that the idea that our time has come or this time has come at this point. Why do you think? It is something that people are curious about and really trying to do something to make sure that the segment of the population, both visible and invisible disabilities, are welcome in the workplace. What's changed?
0: I think just like any group that has been advocating for our rights and speaking up, it feels overdue and like it should have been done before. I'm not sure what has changed now. Maybe there have been just a growing awareness over time and advocacy has finally been paid attention to. So I'm glad that we're here. I'm glad that there's growing interest in addressing disability. I think perhaps as well what has happened is been, there was a great surge in investment in DEI work maybe two years ago that companies started with race and then realized that there were so many other identities and diversity dimensions that they also needed to incorporate into their DEI work. So I think that's some of what has happened in the corporate landscape.
1: Thanks. Just so my guests get to know you, we've had a conversation previously. Can you tell us a little bit about your story, your background, why you do this?
0: Definitely. So I grew up in Maryland, and my mom is Cuban, and my dad is Puerto Rican. And growing up, Latina, but also recognizing my privilege because both of my parents have master's degrees. So I wasn't the young person that needed to translate for my parents or take on more than other kids my age. I had a great education. I had a lot of support from my family in terms of navigating systems. And I recognized growing up that this was a privilege and I wanted to do something always in my career to make the world a better place and have a purpose-driven career. So that is something that really impacted me. As far as my enterprise right now, as a disabled public speaker and DEI consultant, that really came about from my life experience. I struggled with disabilities when I received my diagnosis at 17, because I was told that I was going to be losing my vision over time and there was no cure. And I was at a high point in my life, just about to go to college with a scholarship, ready to take on the world. And I didn't know at that point what my future could look like. I didn't know what was possible for me. I had all these hopes and dreams. And I was raised in the same world that everyone else is that really pushes negative narratives about disability that portrays disabled people as objects to be pitied or objects of inspiration and not as whole people. So I had a long journey ahead of me at that point with how I felt about myself and how I dealt with my disability. So as I moved through first denial and anger, then to a place of acceptance that came through meeting other disabled people, other people with my same condition that were in the 30s, 40s, 50s, living vibrant lives, adapting, using different tools. I started to reshape what I felt about my disability, what was possible for me. And then after I got into a space of acceptance, I started to use a white cane, and that pushed me even further into self-advocacy because you could take one look at me when I have my cane and know that I'm disabled. Whereas before, someone didn't see my hearing aids, or you know, they saw me bump into something, they wouldn't automatically assume, oh, she's blind. She has a vision disability. They, that wouldn't be the assumption. But now I was very visible. It was very obvious that, okay, she's disabled. She's blind. And I began to own that, become super confident about it, and speak up about my needs. And when I saw the difference that made in my life, being unapologetic, educating other people on... What would make a situation inclusive for me? And then having a much better experience, I felt called to do more with my voice. And that is what led me to start Findish Latina, sharing my story online as a content creator and working with corporate clients to improve accessibility, awareness of disability and inclusion, and just build a business in this area and shift my career.
1: It's. I think that, you know, this is an interesting perspective and in that what stops us from being inclusive in the first place is this idea of psychological safety. Can I risk being accepted? Can I speak up? Can I ask for what I need in my workplace without fear that it will in some ways diminish my how people see me and my value and the contribution that I can bring to the organization? When you go in to talk to organizations, what are some of the things that before you do your public speaking, you talk to the person who brought you in or the leadership team to help them think differently about the workplace?
0: Well, the first thing that I'm really talking about is just the need for this conversation. And I think when they speak to me and want to bring me in, my clients are have a variety of experience with DEI work. Some of them are just beginning. Some of them have been doing it for a long time that haven't necessarily touched disability yet. And I'm often honored to be the first speaker speaking about disabilities within the company. So what I generally do is share my own story with them and talk about moments in the workplace that were difficult for me or challenges that I faced in Approaching the situations that are everyday, people don't give a second thought, moments like handshakes or handing your coworker a piece of paper that actually stress me out quite a bit. Why? And I'm, I'm, I'm going to miss it because I don't have peripheral vision. So if I'm looking at someone's face and they're handing me something or stretching out their hand for a handshake, I won't see that unless I'm stepping back or looking down. And when you don't take someone's hand right away or you don't grab the paper, the people automatically make negative assumptions.
1: Oh, she's rude.
0: She's ignoring me. And so there's that fear of someone thinking something about you that's not true. And so that is something that I share with my clients because I think that's their first glimpse into what's gonna be the value of this presentation for their workforce. Just thinking about the work experience and inclusion in a different way and realizing that their employees probably have stories like that that they are not aware of. Barriers that relate to disability and also the extra work that you do as a disabled person to adapt to a world that's not designed for you.
1: What are some of the questions that they might ask you?
0: I think what is important is then to talk about what happens during my actual presentation. That's where I see perhaps some surprising questions and comments come up from the workforce or my clients. But generally, there are a few common responses. People feel seen, mm-hmm. they share stories that relate to mine or that they shared similar feelings, whether it's within a family or in the workplace. There are also questions about how can we support people. There's a lot of questions about language. What's inclusive? What's not inclusive What's offensive? What's not offensive? All of that.
1: Can you give us some examples of what language of inclusion looks like and what's offensive and what's not offensive?
0: Well, actually, we can talk about a term that we are already, what's present today, invisible disabilities. So for some disabled people, this term is actually offensive and they prefer the term non-apparent disability, which is the term that I use in my trainings. And what I understand about this is that by calling a disability invisible, it's saying that it's not visible to others, but when you're the disabled person, it is visible to you. You are showing signs of your disability. It's just not interpreted by others as, oh, this is a sign of disability. And so perhaps the most challenging thing about it, that feeling of people really don't understand me or people are not seeing what is actually going on with me. But non-apparent is inclusive. And I think that as we approach language, language is always evolving. And there's so many nuances in terms of what people prefer. So I think it's also important to talk about just asking your staff or your employees what terms they prefer. Because there are individual preferences as well. So one of the things that I talk about in my talk is ableist language that is very common in our expressions. So, like for example, paralyzed by fear. Using the term paralyzed in this context is not inclusive because that could be offensive to someone who is actually paralyzed. But can we say that a different way? Can we not put paralyzed into this? negative context? Can we make it neutral? So I would say, you know, frozen by fear or just something different. We also have the term tone deaf or falls on deaf ears, where now deafness is being equated with, you know, not knowing or being insensitive in many cases. So can we say that a different way? Using more precise language when you're challenged to say what you actually mean by that is the best way to correct these moments.
1: Hmm. When you're talking about this language, there's even some conversation around, you know, ableisms or differently abled versus disabled. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I think many policies, many training programs that I've seen online and listen to people, they often use language almost all across the spectrum here.
0: Yeah, there are a lot of terms out there. In my perspective, this differently able is a euphemism for disability. It's a way of not saying the word. There's a huge movement within the disability community to say disability, but there's nothing wrong with the word. There's nothing bad about saying disabled or disability. There's even a hashtag, hashtag say the word. And I think this is a very positive shift. We should be destigmatizing disability and it will help the more that people are using the term don't believe that the term differently able came from disabled individuals and i think when we try to make disability more palatable that's really centering the experience of non-disabled people and what feels better for them another euphemism i don't know if you've seen it is hand capable mm. so uh,
1: no i hadn't I but okay <laughs> Yeah, I hadn't heard that one, but it makes sense. It makes sense (laughs) a lot. (laughs) Since coming in and talking about it, this idea of making people feel comfortable about talking about their disabilities and and what they need is an interesting perspective in there. What are some of the things that people in HR leaders need to become aware about when they're thinking about accessibility particularly now that we're a lot of people 40% of the population are not even in the same building most of it is now being in zoom or teams or some other virtual platform do you have any tips or ideas on how they can start making sure that you know they're proactive rather than putting the full burden on the person who's disabled to have to speak up all the time
0: i love that you framed it that way that's so important Because sometimes people, HR leaders, think that they need to create an environment where more people are disclosing their disabilities so they can get a true count or make people feel more comfortable to disclose. And that's not the goal that I think any employer should be striving for. The goal should be disability inclusion. Designing an environment that's inclusive for everyone, whether or not they have disclosed whether or not they've even been diagnosed or know that they have a disability. Some people are diagnosed later in life with disabilities that are not apparent to others such as ADHD or learning disabilities. It can be many years before someone's diagnosed and also people's situations change. Anyone can become disabled at any time. So I think in terms of disability inclusion, the first thing that HR leaders need to realize is that if they're compliant with the ADA and they're providing accommodations to all employees that have requested that, they're not done with the work. That's the floor, not the ceiling. Mm. So they need to realize that that doesn't create inclusion in all environments for these employees. And it doesn't create inclusion for ones that are not speaking up or not sharing. And it's okay because we shouldn't be forcing them to disclose. So in terms of digital inclusion, it's a critical part of what I think HR leaders should be focusing on in terms of the employee experience. When we talk about meetings that are online, there are very simple things that can be done that maybe people don't even think about are related to inclusion for disabilities, but they are, such as creating an agenda and sending it out ahead of time. This helps people like me who are hard of hearing be able to more easily follow a conversation and know what is going to be discussed. This also helps people that have ADHD or just other ways of thinking, such as someone who might need more time to process or is more introverted. Perhaps then they can have time to prepare their thoughts ahead of time. Another important practice to make sure you have in place are closed captioning on your meeting platform. There is no excuse now because it is built into the main platforms being used in today's workforce. Google Meet and Microsoft Teams already have them. So it's a matter of educating your leaders and your staff every time there's a meeting, remind people about the accessibility features available to them on the mm-hmm. platform that you're already paying for. Mm-hmm. Also, each person can just turn on captions. On Zoom, it requires setup, unfortunate, but it is available there are automatic captioning available. So that requires a few extra steps, but you're not paying for anything additional. You're just setting it up and then teaching everyone how to make sure it's present. And when we talk about captions, that benefits the deaf and hard of hearing. It benefits people with auditory processing disorder, people with ADHD, people who are English language learners, people who are distracted or tired that day. Yeah. There's a general preference in the population for watching video now with captions. So we're really helping everyone to understand. And the other thing that I'll mention that is often not thought about is the color contrast of just any material that's out there, your slides, social media posts, newsletters, colors that you're using. Think about how are they contrasting against each other. There are accessibility checkers online where you can check, does this blue color stand out enough against this white color that I'm using as a background, mm-hmm. because that is something that I often see issues with, especially in design and presentation. So I've done some audits and shared with people that maybe have never thought about that before.
1: But there's yes, so it. many
0: best practices so <laughs> those are just three that I'm sharing with you now. Uh,
1: the color coding one came front and center for me several years ago when I was in HR, because we had two leaders who were colorblind. And at the time, it was very popular to use, you know, red, yellow, and green. And they couldn't see the, the colors. And so I remember the private conversation because they didn't feel comfortable kind of telling the CEO, I don't know what this means. I can't see this at all. And that's the other thing. I think, you know, there's like ageism and ethnicisms, all of those things. There still is a concern for many job applicants that if they disclose during the interview, that they will somehow be penalized in the process for a couple of reasons. One, just, you know, people don't know. But I think a big one is recruiters and executives who are not comfortable themselves will start thinking mentally that I don't want to be uncomfortable. I don't want to say the wrong thing. I don't know how to deal with this person. It's going to put a tax on me, those kinds of things. And so it's just like uncomfortable situation kind of going on in the process of doing that. Do you have any tips or any ways that best practices that you might have seen that when people are in an interview situation or thinking about applying for a job, that they can have this conversation from a positive point of view? If
0: we're talking about advice for job seekers, The unfortunate reality is that disability discrimination is rampant and is still happening very commonly. And the anecdotal evidence that has been shared with me in communities that I'm a part of is that when people have disclosed their disability, checking a box in the application process, they are less likely to get called in for the interview. So even when I've spoken to disability lawyers who work in the disability space they've advised that if your disability is not apparent to disclose after you've gotten the job mm-hmm. Hold off and that's the unfortunate reality in our society we're not there yet if you want to disclose or if you have a disability that you cannot know that is visible or apparent now I'm going to change my language if you have a disability that is apparent then one thing that I've seen suggested, I thought it was a great suggestion, is to you yourself, bring it to the conversation, practice how you can talk about it and be very clear about the adaptations that you already employ and use. So for example, just you being the first one helps to make the other person feel more comfortable and really working on your confidence. If you're confident, about it and you explain so for example if I was to disclose my vision disability I could say that I have a limited visual field I have about five percent of the vision that other people have it does not limit me in the context of this job when I have problems sometimes on the computer I can zoom in this is the program that I use and I will not be requesting accommodations for this scenario or but I will need something like for this scenario. And I think that just having that open conversation where you're super confident and clear is going to prevent the recruiter from making negative assumptions about what you're capable of. Mm -hmm. But it is something that I think people should practice and come up with some talking points around because uh, you want to really be as direct and confident as possible. One thing that you'll notice is that I didn't talk about My condition. I didn't say the name of my condition. It didn't go into great detail about my symptoms because I just find that when I'm communicating with other people, it's better, more effective. I just tell them what they need to know in a high level summary. But the other thing that I say is that recruiters need to do a better job of accommodating and providing accessibility that's built into the interview process, letting candidates know what will be provided. Are you already providing closed captions? let them know, have standard language and guidance that the interview will include closed caption and provide a box where people can ask for other things or if you have different options that they can just select what would be helpful for that. And it's really not about even knowing why someone's going to be using the closed caption. It's about you building that inclusive interview process and recruitment process. And that's how you communicate your values as well. That would make a big difference for all
1: candidates. Yeah, I think that it's interesting, the little things that we can do that go beyond just are we inclusive for people who might have a disability, but just thinking about it from a broader perspective. One of the things I, as you were discussing, you know, send out an agenda ahead of schedule. It's funny because I've been teaching send out the agenda, not because it might help someone with a disability, but it just helps the flow of people understanding. When people understand what's expected of them, communication happens better in general. And so some of the good practices that, or best practices that we know in terms of just being thoughtful about communicating with other individuals, actually, if I hear you correctly, take on a bigger meaning. It's the best way I can say it. It's really about thinking about how somebody else might be interpreting things or not interpreting things, whether a person is an introvert or an extrovert speaking up and what does speaking up look like, asking people for who are you, tell us about yourself, all of those things to make the environment comfortable for people to step forward and really talk about not just what they bring to the workplace, but how do they use it? How does it help them be a star employee? Because most folks, by the time they get to the workplace, they already know what it takes to be a good employee. Yes,
0: I mean, what you're speaking about, that inclusive practices and best practices for leadership benefit everyone in different ways. I think that's so important for people to understand. It's the same thing with accessibility. When you create more accessibility in products, it benefits everyone, all consumers. One of the most common examples shared is curb cuts, as far as accessibility goes. When curb cuts were designed for sidewalks, okay, they were designing for wheelchair users. However, Everyone today is using that, whether you're pulling a suitcase, pushing a stroller, you're pulling a package, you're elderly, you just want to be safe. It helps everyone be safe. So just like the example of the agenda in the workplace, I want to give another example of using a hand-raising button for these digital meetings. It's really helpful as well for employees. So when we think about who are the loudest voices in the room, who are most likely to jump in, these are generally going to be the dominant groups, the white voices, the men. And so when we hand raise, we provide more equity. Okay, now other voices can feel more comfortable that they're going to be heard and more likely to be involved in the conversation. And that's not just for disabled individuals, that's for different races, different genders. And it's just so important to think about
1: the impact of inclusion, the power, it's very broad. Yeah, and the other side is, is so one of the things that I noticed in one of the blogs that you had posted was this idea of just exploring and bringing someone in like you who could help people just normalize what are the best practices. So agendas, the hand raising on virtual platforms, understanding that the brain gets fatigued, after a certain period of time and making it such that you're not spending three and four hours back to back on a meeting and agendas help with that because you have to think through what are the decisions that need to be made what are we informing people should we put it in an email should we talk about it here why are we talking about it what does it mean that what information are we trying to get and so by practicing these techniques we really are helping everybody in the room to feel safe enough to say I'm following along or admit that they may be just fatigued from the day of figuring it out and to take more ownership on scheduling meetings and what meetings look like. I think this idea of how do we make it such that whether it's a parent or not a parent in terms of the disability We all are human and we all come to the table with very different abilities and proclivities, et cetera. And we have to figure out ways in which we are thinking from the perspective of another person, this idea of empathy and compassion in the workplace, which is garnering a lot of support and a lot of language right now is probably, this is an expansion of being able to do that in the workplace. Can I ask you another question? One of the things that I found interesting and you bring up in your bio is, is that you're the first generation American on one side, the second generation American on the other side. How has that influenced you to become a leader today?
0: Well, the most important thing for me that I saw was there is so much knowledge in my family that maybe wasn't recognized by culture here, American culture. But when you grow up and you have worked in other countries and other cultures, you see that the world doesn't revolve around just the United States and that there is so much richness and heritage and knowledge, traditions that are really valuable and special. So I appreciate having a connection to my culture and what that has meant for me. One of my greatest gifts, I guess, from my childhood is that my parents, even though they were both English dominant, they taught me Spanish as my first language, which is hard to do. And I'm so glad that I learned Spanish. When I was eight years old, my mother put me into Spanish school on Saturdays because I was forgetting my Spanish. She wasn't having it. She said, no, Catalina, okay. (laughs) She's got to go school we got to keep up the Spanish and I was reading I was writing I was doing social studies I had to do homework for Spanish school on Friday night and I was not happy about it as a child it was five years of going to school on Saturday but looking back as an adult I'm so grateful I'm so grateful because i use used Spanish so much in my career and also my personal life my first job was as a bilingual teacher in the Bronx where I was felt Like that are giving back to the Latinx community because my students were all from immigrant backgrounds. Some recently arrived, newly arrived, and some would have been here a little longer. And I was able to be that person who believed in them and provided them a great learning experience as best as I could. So just having this background, I think, has really made me more aware of diversity and the need to support people in the workplace, that there's not one right way. When we see dominant voices saying, oh, there's one right way, this is the way to do things that I know, that is not true. It really fuels my work and gives me a personal connection to uplifting other voices.
1: It's interesting because, you know, for years, decades now, we've been talking about being a global society and that if you're going to compete in the workplace, particularly now, Then you have to have a global perspective, the ability to be able to see and to embrace and just understand it's more than just speaking another language. It really is about perspective. And I think that's what you brought forward just a few minutes ago, is that the fact that you live in multiple languages, multiple backgrounds, you embraced your heritage, et cetera, you now have a wider understanding of how to interact with. People who are not Americans, people who are Americans, people who are just differently thinking in how they may have been brought up, what is acceptable from, you know, whether we shake hands, don't shake hands, whether we, you know, we pause, whether we speak up. I remember talking to one of my podcast hosts, Glenn Watson, and he was saying that one of the things he had to learn was. You know, as he was working with people in Asian countries, not all Asian countries are the same. Sometimes they can speak up. Sometimes it is considered rude to speak up against a leader or to have a different opinion. And so I think the fact that you have this global perspective brings such a a richness to the work that you're doing right now. For other individuals, what would you, do you have a book or a class or Something in which people can deep dive for themselves and take away from this conversation so that they too can begin to broaden their perspective so that they're able to be more inclusive.
0: If people want to continue learning with me, I would invite everyone to come join my Stigma Smasher community on Instagram. I'm at Blindish Latina and I'm always sharing little learning moments, videos graphics, and all of my links are in the link in my bio. I do have a free ebook that talks about 12 best practices for digital accessibility, which can be downloaded on my website. And the link to that is in my Instagram bio. And also you can just go to my website for it. I'm sure you will have those links for you. Oh, yeah, Thanks. My goal with the Instagram is to broaden my impact to reach more people and to show people who I am as a disabled, Latine, content creator, let them into my life. Because unfortunately a lot of people don't know a disabled person. They don't think they know, they probably do, but they <laughs> don't have someone that makes disability real for them. So I show up online and I want to be people, disabled, find if they don't have one. And I want them to care about disability because they care about me. So I'm doing a lot of education there. And it also ties in really well with my speaking because I also share best practices for the workplace. I'm always talking about how I have disability pride. I'm proud of myself, just sharing really important messages.
1: Katarina Rivera, the woman who is smashing disability stigmas through storytelling content creation, and the most beautiful smile that anyone can have. So I encourage you guys go take a look at her on her Instagram page at Blindish Latina and follow her. So you know the story, folks. This is the end of our podcast. I can't believe it's gone so quickly. If you liked it, share it. If you don't like it, share it, because I promise you it will generate a conversation that you probably wouldn't have had without it. And with that, I want everyone to, if you like this podcast, please go wherever you're listening to this. Make sure that you're following us because we come out with a story. And the generosity of my guests is incredible. They share parts of themselves that under normal circumstances, they probably wouldn't. And I try to ask questions that you want. And so if you have a question, you have a guest, you have something that you think I should be talking about on the podcast, feel free to let me know. You can reach me on all the regular podcast forums from Apple and the rest of them. So with that, I will talk to you next week. See ya. That's a wrap. And I'm Denise Cooper. And you've been listening to closing the gap with Denise Cooper. Let me thank my good friend, Ivan G. Hall for the background music. I'd like to ask you to do three things. One, if you liked it, share it with your friends. Let's build up our community to subscribe so that you don't miss when a new episode drops. And lastly, if you've got a question or comment, leave it below. I'd love to hear what you thought was good, what I could do better, and what topics you'd like to hear about. Let me thank my guests one more last time. Thank you for listening. I'll see you next week. Bye.